Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztrauber. On today's show, cross-border data. As our lives continue to move online and our data are stored all over the world, questions on how law enforcement can get access to data to have investigations and to bring people to justice, it's butting up against civil liberties and due process protections. And there's this ongoing balancing act. How can we make sure that we can keep people safe without violating civil liberties or actually compromising the security of our digital products? So joining me to discuss this are two excellent guests, Jennifer Daskal, Associate Professor at the Law at American University, Washington College of Law. Jennifer, thanks for joining the show. Thank you. And Drew, uh, your second time on the podcast, Policy Council Access Now. This is Drew Mitnick. You do have a last name. Uh, thanks for joining, Drew. Happy to be here. Thanks. And last time we were talking about botnets. Uh, so if anyone is yep. interested in that, we'll make sure to link to that as well. So Congress has been looking at this problem, right? Because now we have just this borderless nature of the internet. And just because I live in the US doesn't mean my data are stored here. And that applies to people all over the world. And there's this ongoing problem of when a domestic law enforcement agency in any country, it could be a city uh, police agency, it could be a national intelligence agency, they need data that are stored somewhere else. And now it's your system and their system. And how do we bridge the gap? So Jennifer, I'll start with you, you know, when this term cross border data requests, like what comes to mind just initially to kind of give the listeners a sense of what we're debating here? Sure. So I think there's kind of two key issues here. One is a question of the scope of U.S. warrant authority to reach data that happens to be held outside of the United States. Um, up until really December of 2013, the U.S. government government would serve a warrant on a provider, and the provider would turn over data within its custody and control. In 2013, for the first time, one provider, in this case Microsoft, said, actually, we're going to challenge this practice because we think that data that's stored outside the United States is not subject to the warrant authority. And in this case, it was Ireland where the data were stored, Exactly. Right? And so after a series of appeals, the Second Circuit has basically agreed with Microsoft and said that the warrant authority only reaches data that happens to be within the territorial boundaries of the United States, causing all sorts of problems, and there's a number of magistrate judges who have disagreed with the Second Circuit. There's a second set of issues that are caused by other provisions of U.S. law that prohibit foreign governments, foreign law enforcement, from accessing emails, communications content um, that happens to be U.S. held. So think U.K. officials, U.K. constables investigating a London murder. Turns out that the perpetrator is using Gmail. They can't go directly to Gmail to ask for that data. They instead have to make a mutual legal assistance request to the United States, go through this kind of long, laborious process, wait likely months, many months, if not more, to get access to this data. And this is causing real frustration on the part of foreign governments as well. Andrew, you work for Access Now, which is a global civil liberties and human rights organization. And in general, your organization has been critical of just the ballooning surveillance state around the world and just the kind of lack of constitutional uh, oversight and just kind of like a free-for-all, the golden age of surveillance is a term that we've heard. So it might actually seem like a victory for privacy advocates that a court would say to Microsoft, yes, you are right. Um, Just because people want access to data stored in Ireland and just because you're an American company doesn't mean you can have it. I mean, is that an outcome that your group supports? I mean, are you happy that the court said you don't have extraterritorial authority for data in other countries? I, you know, I don't think we took it necessarily as a victory um, or or a victory for privacy or um, kind of a negative outcome either way. I mean, I think we view it as uh, a result of what we also recognize as a problem, which is 
that there are there are barriers to to the system for accessing data and the the approaches that governments have been taking which which are things like just trying to exert extraterritorial jurisdiction to gain access to data or to develop other other methods to gain access to the data um, probably aren't aren't the right solution at least at least in in the short term um, we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot of very negative consequences we've seen things like uh, you know local local storage of data to ensure that countries can have access we've seen things like um, government hacking expanded I mean I, I think that these are and these are the things that you often hear from people when they say you know we need to make sure that that governments have have access to data that there needs to be a system in place and so one of the things that you know access now has supported uh, is is to ensure that there is a framework you know a framework in place that, enables the the lawful requests that are actually compliant with human rights that that framework exists that it's not a, that it's not um, kind of a hodgepodge uh, of solutions and that those solutions often are um, causing their own set of problems yeah and that's one of the issues here right is that we're dealing country by country and uh, while it might be possible for the U.S. to engage in some type of umbrella agreement, that isn't really what we've been seeing play out. It's been more kind of like a bilateral basis and maybe model policy results. But really, you're dealing with every single country in the world that has law enforcement needs and you have to figure out a balance. Now, that can be really clunky. I mean, we're talking about exactly the hodgepodge you're trying to avoid where there's one standard for the U.K., there's a different standard for France, there's a different standard for China. So, Jennifer... Do you have a sense of what the ideal state is, given that there are so many competing concerns? Drew raised a couple where if people don't get what they need, they're going to start requesting the companies store data about their citizens in their country. And that undermines the borderless nature of the Internet that could pose serious problems for commerce. Or they might just go on a hacking spree uh, without any type of oversight because they need the data. So we want to avoid that. And I think all sides probably can agree that those would be bad outcomes. So how do we get to that ideal state? that is an MLAT or a mutual legal assistance treaty uh, that is good, that you that you might support? So, so I think the Microsoft Ireland case, the case that was brought by Microsoft regarding the data in Ireland, exacerbates that problem in terms of incentivizing data localization mandates because it makes jurisdiction over data turn on where the data is located. Right. And that provides an incentive for companies, for countries to demand that people keep data locally so they can access it. So to answer your question, where, how do we how do we solve this problem? You know, in an ideal world, we'd have some sort of global treaty, and there'd be a great meeting of minds, and we would have really <laughs> robust human rights standards and privacy protections. That's and, nice, like the United Nations, just everyone votes unanimously for an agreement, and we all go home. Yeah, <laughs> and the reality is, we don't live in that world, unfortunately. And so there the are question people is, who are, there are people who are you know pushing aggressively for for that type of solution and see that as a viable option, right? I mean, there are some international bodies that are putting faith in, in the international system as a, as a method to respond and and using the UN. I mean, we joke about it, and and it, it does seem not feasible. But the United Nations, there are institutions within the United Nations that view itself as part of you know the solution to. Uh, the broader problem. But you don't, you're, I'm guessing you don't see that as viable, Jennifer. I'm, I'm just not optimistic in the short term. Yeah. I don't think that the United States is necessarily going to agree with China about what the privacy protections ought <laughs> right. to be. And to the extent that China and Russia and all these countries around the world have a real voice at the table, it's not going to look pretty. So I think the reality is, at least in the short term, we're talking initially about what can we do with respect to U.S. law. That's where we have some potential control. And so the question is, 
what do you do to legislate in response to the Microsoft Ireland case so that law enforcement can, pursuant to a warrant issued by probable cause, which is a high privacy protective standard, access data and legitimate investigations without kind of arbitrary distinctions based on where companies choose to hold the data, and at the same time, facilitate in legitimate circumstances with basic human rights protections built in the ability of foreign governments to access data that happens to be U.S. held so you don't end up with the parade of horribles that Drew already talked about in terms of incentivizing mandatory data localization requirements, increased use of surreptitious means of accessing the data. So this conversation often happens in the context of Europe, uh, because like you said, there are just some serious fundamental differences with countries like China and Russia, and it might be damn near impossible to come to an agreement about what due process is and what human rights uh, entail. But with Europe, there are some similarities, uh, of course, and that's always a place for comparison. Now, is there an agreement currently on the books or ha- that has been proposed or has been you know, floated that in either your mind or Drew, feel free to jump in after, is getting at that ideal state that could be replicated as a model policy so that you don't end up with a hodgepodge? Right. So again, I think I do think it's important to separate out the two issues. So there are a number of proposals on the table in terms of responding to the question of the reach of U.S. warrant authority. Right, right. That's And that's dealing with the Ireland case right. where the data were abroad and it was U.S. It was the Justice Department that needed the data. Again, based on a warrant issued by probable cause, exactly. prote- privacy protective standard. Then there's the separate question of foreign government access. And there is a draft agreement that's been worked out between the U.S. and the U.K. that would permit the U.K. government in limited circumstances in the investigation of serious crime to to make direct requests to US-based providers for data of persons who are outside the United States, who are not US citizens and not legal permanent residents. If the UK wanted data about people in the United States, US citizens or legal permanent residents, they would have to continue to make a mutual legal assistance request and ultimately obtain a warrant based on probable cause. And this agreement basically stems from the idea that if the UK is investigating a local murder, local victim, local perpetrator, its standards, um, assuming that they're sufficiently privacy protective, ought to apply, that it makes sense to allow them to make requests pursuant to their own local standards in order to access the data of their citizens, their residents. If they're accessing data of U.S. citizens, then it makes sense to impose U.S. rules in those circumstances. Now, of course, the U.K. is an interesting case because in the privacy world, they're not exactly held up on a hill as a uh, model uh, civil liberties protector. Um, and they're often associated with expanse, expansive surveillance. Uh, you know, They were at the forefront of the Snowden leaks. So, Drew, I mean, when we're talking about trusting a country's internal processes and we're saying that you're kind of on the list of okay countries and, you know, we have this long history and a great relationship and despite political turmoil, it seems that our two leaders are relatively simpatico. Um, Do you trust the UK government? And would you basically enact into US law basically saying that we can trust their processes going forward and they can make direct requests to American companies? No, uh, no, I don't. I mean, you know, so they so, didn't question much. It was, yeah, yeah, quite. And I appreciate the the setup. No, no. Uh, uh, so, so the UK uh, last year uh, approved a, a new surveillance authority that was called the Investigatory uh, Powers Act. Right. The and Snoopers Charter. Snoopers Charter. As many it's better. Yeah, to it. a, a preferred term. Uh, and it doesn't, in a lot of ways, it doesn't satisfy the standard that we would expect in the United States on privacy, on access to data. And so when you're talking about the first potential partner in this 
uh, in this, you know, essentially MLAT bypass system to be a country whose whose standards, you know, don't don't satisfy what I think most Americans expect. That that would only be the first country. I mean, after that, you would have you would have you know. And so the the system that's proposed that would allow the U.S. and U.K. to reach this agreement would then allow the U.S. to reach other agreements with other countries. And we don't we don't yet know what other countries those would be. But you know, a lot of the other countries that are potential allies uh, are countries that, in in similarity to the United Kingdom, have their own set of privacy challenges. So I think it's worth noting that um, if you're talking about creating a system that essentially to us to a subset of data replaces the current one the MLAT system the mutual legal assistance treaty system that you're sacrificing privacy because you don't you no longer have that uh that effective uh check on the US side at least and on the, on and on any other side when it's a US request that there be adequate protections in place to ensure that ensure that that country is acting to uh, in accordance with human rights standards and with what we would expect for as domestic standards in the United States. Jennifer, I'm guessing you might have a different take on the UK-US model agreement. I do. So the US-UK agreement and no agreement can go into place without implementing legislation by Congress. And so the, the draft legislation that's been proposed, it was proposed first by the Obama administration and then with like exceedingly minor adjustments by this administration, basically, um, as Drew just said, authorizes the executive branch to enter into either bilateral, multilateral agreements with foreign governments. It doesn't actually authorize the foreign governments to directly access data, but it lifts the bar. So so it, so the bar that prohibits US-based providers from turning over the data is lifted. Um, these agreements have a number of different requirements in place. So in order for a country to be eligible, they have to be certified as meeting basic due process protections. But more importantly, they also are very specific about the kinds of requests that can be made. So the requests have to be particularized. They have to be targeted. They have to be of a limited duration. They have to be reviewed or approved by a judge. There's a number of requirements that protect against the kind of bulk surveillance that might be authorized in some other parts of these foreign government's laws. And I also think it's important to remember that we're talking about foreign governments accessing the data of their of, of non-U.S. persons, people outside the United States, in the investigation of local crime. And the only reason why the U.S. even has any say over this information, over these rules at any event, is because this data happens to be stored with U.S.-based providers. It's not entirely clear to me that that's a justification for insisting that these governments use the process of a warrant and probable cause. And when we do insist on that, and foreign governments get frustrated because they can't get data they need to prosecute local serious crime, then we start seeing things like increased use of mandatory data localization laws in ways that completely cut the United States whatsoever out of any developing any of the standards that apply. So why? what, what is the problem with the current system? I mean, in, in theory, if we're not talking about delays or things that you might explain after I uh, set this up, but... In theory, it'd be great if every country was required to essentially have Fourth Amendment-style protections in order to, to access this data. I mean, why would we as the United States not want to set that marker to essentially say, look, you use American products, you use American companies, and that's wonderful. And as part of that, we get to kind of say that you need to have human rights and due process protections akin to the Fourth Amendment and all of our case law because we decided that this is a better protection than many countries offer. Are you suggesting that 
requiring that system or I guess relying on the current system is too onerous? I mean, what's the problem with just saying, hey, guys, you should do what we do? <laughs> so I think I mean, I think that it's absolutely appropriate and um, and really kind of incumbent on um, our government to, ins- to to require baseline human rights and privacy protective standards as a condition for accessing this data. But the probable cause standard, the particulars of a warrant requirement under U.S. law, they're specific U.S. things. That's not the words probable cause are not even in the vocabulary of most foreign governments. So requiring foreign governments to use our specific processes for their investigation of their own crime seems kind of imperialistic and not realistic. It's not something that these governments can do. And if you start insisting on it, rather than insisting on baseline protections that also allow for some variation based on differences in civil law systems and common law systems and in all kinds of ways in which other countries have different kinds of protections that we don't have and vice versa, um, I think you end up um, leading countries to be incredibly frustrated and engaging in the kinds of practices that Drew mentioned earlier on, including mandatory data localization laws where U.S. has no say whatsoever, um, surreptitious means of trying to access evidence, um, increased pressure on encryption policy because there's a tie between these two things. One of the reasons why foreign governments are seeking this kind of stored communications from U.S. health providers is because of the rising use of encryption. They used to be able to get it as it transited wires across their jurisdictions. That data is now all encrypted. You'll start seeing, I think, increased pressures to, to require um, access to locally transiting data. And so there's, there's real costs, I think, to not trying to solve this problem in a way that both um, protects human rights and basic privacy protections, but also respects differences between the ways different sovereigns handle these, these types of questions. So it seems like there's a clear trade-off here that needs to be balanced where you want to avoid governments from doing bad things, but you don't want to just give in to their demands because they threaten you with data localization or something. So Drew, I mean, Jennifer makes a compelling point that the current system is too clunky and frustrating and that insisting on an American style system in every country is just not feasible. What kind of insurances do you need or does your group need to trust a country like the UK or France or go down the list? Because like you said, once you get that first agreement, it is going to be seen as a marker. Yeah. Well, well, to start, I would say that the language that's required, the, the language that's required in, in the law authorizing these agreements is inadequate to protect privacy. That it, it that the, the certification process that happens uh, is fairly weak. And then even, even what would be required of each, uh, of each request is, is fairly weak as well. I mean, if you look at the United Kingdom's standard on accessing data, uh, they don't require judicial authorization to the same way that we do in the United States, where they have they have less of a review process there. There are fewer. There's a more narrow scope of review of, of request uh, the, the they would potentially be able to request uh, live intercept like a wiretap under U.S. law, which has a heightened standard. So you don't necessarily see a lot of the a lot of the protections that uh, would would be expected under U.S. law. So um, I think, you know, I think making that system stronger, making that bypass system stronger would require that every single every single request for data uh, satisfies a fairly strong human rights standard. I mean, this is an opportunity to create a system that is founded, the foundation of which is is human rights, which is the, fa- the foundation of things like, you know, human rights 
it's commonly it's commonly said that human rights law requires things like notice to the data subject. Uh, you know, that's a, that is not yet discussed as an element of the system. Um, you know, the so the so there are a series of standards that I think are uh, that are out there that could that could become the basis of a bypass system that aren't in there yet. I think it's also worth pointing out as a slightly as a slightly separate point is that a lot of the a lot of the countries in the way this formulated a lot of the countries that are the worst offenders when it comes to exercising control over private internet infrastructure, Russia and China, let's say, would not be invited into the system and so wouldn't deter some of the worst offenders from actually doing a lot of the terrible things that they're going to do to the internet. And this model has also come under some criticism because it doesn't deal with metadata. So I guess we've been talking about the contents of communications and stored data, but one of the big issues in the privacy debate is about metadata. It's like the recipient of a call, I'm making the call, at what time, how long did the call go, not actually having the audio from the call. Um, and so a lot of times law enforcement are even more keen on getting that easily than they are on getting the actual stored content. Jennifer, why do you think that the UK-US proposed framework just ignores this seemingly important question? Well, so the US-UK framework is meant to deal with the fact that there is a blocking provision in US law that's prohibiting UK law enforcement from accessing certain data in, in situations where they're investigating local crimes and their serious crimes and certain yeah. preconditions have met. Those blocking provisions don't exist with respect to metadata. So the law, US law prohibits US-based companies from turning over stored communications content to foreign but providers. Not met, so under the current system, despite its flaws, they actually can get the metadata? Is that why it's not being dealt There's with? There's no prohibition in U.S. law from providers from turning over metadata. But it's up to the provider. Right? It's up to the provider. So the providers, there's they produce transparency reports every six months, and they detail in, in at least in aggregate the kinds of requests that they're getting from countries around the world. They get tons of these requests, um, and they respond. Um, the big providers have law enforcement teams that, that evaluate the requests and determine when to respond. Under current U.S. law, there's no um, specific rules to, to detail when they can and can't respond to these foreign-based requests. Is that something that Congress should do, in your opinion? Should they force companies to comply with metadata requests just as legislation might force them to comply with content requests. So so the legislation does not force them to comply with content requests and I don't think it ever should. I also don't think there should be ever any ever there should never be any requirement that they have to comply with these requests. I also don't think it would be at all helpful to impose any new blocking provisions with respect to metadata. Okay. There's all kinds of ways and I think important um, ongoing efforts to ensure that companies um, apply meaningful standards and, and internal processes when they're responding to these requests. And there's other ways of, of ensuring um, that um, companies are not providing data in ways um, that will violate human rights and violate privacy. But I don't think that a new blocking provision is the way to go about that. But I, I think the metadata question raises another point, which is that um, we don't really know how functioning the current system could be with improvements, right? So, so one one proposal has been to adequately fund MLATs, and that hasn't really been tried to see how much of a uh, how much of an improvement that system would would to the create. extent that it's a capacity problem, which yeah. is why governments are waiting months and months and months right. for stuff that they need now. Exactly, exactly. And then there's another question about metadata, which so um, 
the the prime minister of Australia just made a comment. Uh, he's made a couple comments recently about uh, about encryption. So he's using that buzzword encryption. But then if you look closely at what he's saying, he's talking about encrypted metadata, which I think what he seems to be getting at is that he wants access to metadata for encrypted communications. And per, and presumably that's not a problem with encryption. It's not a problem with uh, with MLATs. It's a problem with the the current process to actually just request metadata from the companies. And so I think part of part of it is also just looking at the current system as it functions and say, what what are the kind of the simple improvements we can make to, to reduce some of the burden on the system without having to go through these wholesale changes? Right. So I guess uh, to sum up kind of the messages I'm getting from both of you for Congress, I'm hearing from Jennifer that uh, the prohibition needs to be lifted because that's just what is the biggest risk for data localization and other bad actions on government's parts, um, and that the US-UK agreement might be a good path forward. What I'm hearing from Drew is that we should add more protections to the UK-US agreement and then potentially also look at the current system and say, what could we do to improve it as we continue having this debate? To wrap up the show, is there anything else you'd like the staffers who I hope are listening to this podcast to hear as these their bosses are dealing with this very important issue in legislation? I would just say that I think we have a real opportunity here to um, to to act. The, con- the U.S. Congress does, and that there will be real costs if the U.S. Congress kind of sits on its heels. Um, both with re- again with respect to the Microsoft Ireland problem, the case the U.S. government's now um, trying to seek cert before the Supreme Court. They filed a cert petition. Um, courts, I don't think, can really resolve that question in kind of the nuanced way that Congress can and should. Right. So Congress really has a role and I think an obligation to step in on that problem and a real opportunity here to um, facilitate access and also set baseline privacy protections in doing so. Drew? I would just say the flip side, which is when you're talking about permitting other countries to exercise, uh, you know, law enforcement authority domestically, you need to be very cautious and, and better to start with something very cautious and take uh, take small steps than to than to than to go uh, drastic with a solution. Well, you guys both have written about this topic at length, and we will make sure to link to those excellent pieces in the show notes. But that's it for today. My guests have been Jennifer Daskal, Associate Professor of Law at American University's Washington School of Law, and Drew Mitnick, Policy Counsel at Access Now. Guys, thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Thank Evan. you. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at media at techfreedom.org. That email might be stored here or in Ireland. I just can't tell you. I don't know. Um, find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.